Lord, we do ask that you would give us your wisdom and that we would follow in all your ways and all your paths. You've given us your word for this very reason, that we might um, not be wandering around in darkness, but might walk according to the light. You've also given us your spirit so that our eyes might be open to the truth of your light, uh, that we might be able to see with, with eyes of faith. Lord, we ask that, we, uh, that you would do that for us this evening as we come to your word um, in Ezekiel 44, itself a vision, a revelation of promises and hopes that we might rest and help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn now in God's word to Ezekiel chapter 44. Remain standing if you're able. If not, please feel free to be seated. We're going to hear God's word this, more, or this evening. Uh, it is a continuing of in a vision that Ezekiel has been given by God of, of the temple and the various regulations and things concerning it. Ezekiel chapter 44, let's hear the word of God. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Verse 3. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Then he, shall, then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, and hear with your ears, all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all its exits from the sanctuary. And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations in admitting foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple when you offer to me my food, the fat, and the blood. You have broken my covenant, in addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me, going astray uh, from me after their idols when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and the ministering in the temple. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, and they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priests, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and the abominations that they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple 
to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near me to minister to me. They shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary and they shall approach my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. When they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments. They shall have nothing of wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their waists. They shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. And when they go out into the outer court to the people, they shall put off the garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers. And they shall put on other garments, lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. They shall not shave their heads or let their locks grow long. They shall surely trim the hair of their heads. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but only virgins of the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is the widow of a priest. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common, and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute they shall act as judges, and they shall judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed feasts, and they shall keep my Sabbaths holy. They shall not defile themselves by going near to a dead person. However, for father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, they may defile themselves. After he has become clean, they shall count seven days for him. And on the day that he goes into the holy place, into the inner court to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. This shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. And the first of all the fruits of all kinds, and every offering of all kinds from all your offerings shall belong to the priests. You shall also give it to the priests, the first of your dough, that a blessing may rest on your house. The priests shall not eat, <coughs> excuse me, the priest shall not eat of anything, whether bird or beast, that has died of itself or is torn by wild animals. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, as we considered last time, the Lord gives this vision to Ezekiel for a reason. He gives it so that it might be expressed, so that we might study it and learn from it. It is for our blessing. There are many passages like this in Scripture that um, are are often um, skipped over um, or ignored, and yet right there in the text itself says that they are to be studied for our blessing. So as we approach a text like this, it's right for us to ask ourselves right from the beginning, are we going to believe God or not? Are we going to pay attention and listen and try to understand, or are we going to give up uh, before we start? So that's, that's for you. We think about this, and my encouragement to you is to pay attention, 
Um, There are good things here. It may seem strange at first when he says to um, note the entrances and the exits. What could possibly be uh, important about entrances and exits? But they are important, and I hope to explain and share some of that uh, this evening. We have a number of instructions here in in Ezekiel 44. Um, The first begins with um, a note about an entrance. Again, the details matter here. We read in verse 1 that he is brought back to the outer gate of the sanctuary that faces east, and he finds that this time it was shut. Why is it shut? Why does the Lord say, this gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter it? Well, he gives us the reason, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. This is not just any ordinary gate anymore. It never was ordinary, but now this extraordinary gate in an extraordinary vision of an extraordinary temple is shut, this particular gate, because the Lord, who is above all of those things, has entered through it. Right away, we get a sense of the significance of this space, of the places, and that they are going to be marked and understood by the Lord. This is how we come to know this place, and it is through this place that we come to know and understand him. And I think perhaps the key message in Ezekiel 44 and other places here in the surrounding chapters is the holiness of God, the separateness of God. Notice that separateness, which is attached with Uh, ideas about cleanliness and uncleanliness, about being defiled and undefiled, or undefiled, is not exactly correspond with sin. So, for example, remember when he says about the priests that they um, may defile themselves, right? They are allowed to defile themselves in um, coming into contact with a dead body, Not any dead body, but those that are closest to them, right? Their mothers, their fathers, um, and so on. He says that they may defile themselves not because the Lord is winking at sin, but because it's not a sin to come into contact with a dead body. So what does defilement mean? It means to become unclean in a way that makes it access into the holy places impossible or illegal, Which is to say that holiness and righteousness are similar, but they're not exactly the same thing. Righteousness leads to holiness and a separateness, but holiness is a category that is somewhat distinct. Holiness means separateness and being not common, right? He says that the priests are to learn and to instruct the difference between the holy and the common. Common doesn't mean sinful. Common means common. It means not holy. Now, sinful things are also not holy, um, but, um, but there are common things that defile a person, even sweat, right, and other things like that. And what that does is it's teaching us something about the Lord. The Lord is not common. The Lord is not ordinary. The Lord is set apart. The Lord is distinct. The Lord is holy, And part of what is happening here in Ezekiel 44 is there is an emphasis on that in many different ways, which I'll point out some of the details, and not just an emphasis on the holiness of the Lord, but a reminder that we are, he, in his love, is doing two things. On the one hand, he's coming close to us in his holiness, 
right? He had previously left the temple, and now he's entering the temple. He's coming close to us. He's being near to us. Everything about this temple is about, it has the question, we should have the question in our minds is, what's the, how can I get closest to God, right? That's sort of the goal that's set up here. And yet at the same time, as there is, we could say, imminence, uh, the, that with an eye, a closeness of the Lord, there's also a way in which he is protecting us from that holiness and keeping us from that holiness. He is making himself distinct. Did you notice the detail about the clothes again? The priests are to wear linen garments, these, and only certain priests, those of Zadok, they're to wear linen garments. Why? So they don't sweat, right? If they wear wool and these kinds of things, they, uh, the likelihood of that uh, sweat is more likely. And then the concern is not only the sweat, but also then if they take those clothes that they're wearing when they're ministering at the table of the Lord and then just walk out of the building into a common area, it says that they might transmit holiness to the people. Isn't that interesting? Isn't holiness for the people what God would want? Why would he want to keep the holiness from transmitting to them? There's a number of things we could say about that, but the key point here is that there is a kind of, well, to say it again, a separateness of it, and even a danger in the holiness of the Lord. You don't just come into the holiness of the Lord on your own terms and in your own ways, defiled and common. To be close to the Lord has a very, very high bar. And what we see in the scriptures is those who come into contact with holy things and who have not met that bar, who have not met that standard, who have not followed the rules or whatever the thing is, we'd have to look at some examples, but sometimes they die. Remember Uriah reaching out and touching the ark to keep it from falling Remember Nadab and Abihu offering unauthorized fire before the Lord who were struck dead. We are going to take the Lord's Supper here in a little bit. In 1 Corinthians, we are told that those who uh, were taking the Lord's Supper um, without discerning, without examining themselves, who weren't taking in faith but instead elbowing one another and getting drunk, he says some of you were even dying. And getting sick, this is, explains these things. When, now, um, uh, well, those are enough examples. The holiness of the Lord is not just about being separate or about being different. It describes to us something about God himself. And he's not safe. He is to be feared. He is to be wondered at. He is to be... Uh, stood in awe of. Hebrews tells us to go uh, worship the Lord and to do so, but to remember that our God is a consuming fire and to worship him in reverence and in awe. God, by creating these rules, by creating these standards here in this vision, is emphasizing that point, is underlining that point about who he is and what our relationship to him must be for our own safety. It's not to say you shouldn't be holy or we shouldn't desire holiness or closeness to the Lord, but it is to force us to ask this question, how can I be holy? How can I be close to the Lord?
What are some of the ways, other ways we see this, this distinction in holiness, this protection even from holiness, and these, this point underlined in this passage? In addition to the priests and their clothings and the restricted access from the east gate, we also see restricted access for the prince. Before, the kings of Israel um, would, use the, um, would use the temple as sort of a private place to worship, but this would be no more. Access was limited. They would be kept even uh, on the very far reach, uh, boundaries of the outer court. Another thing, he says, no more are uncircumcised people going to come in and do this work. The priests had previously, in 2 Kings 11, we've been reading, they'd been letting people who were coming in, as the Lord says here, uncircumcised, not just in the flesh, but in the heart. In the heart and the flesh. So two problems there. On the one hand, they are not followers of the Lord, lovers of the Lord. They had not, uh, they had not circumcised their hearts. But also, they were Gentiles. They were uh, common. They were uh, not those who belonged there. This was not to happen anymore. We read also of, um, of these restrictions on those who are called um, to be in the presence of the Lord, and particularly the priests of, of Zadok. We read, or I, I mentioned, reference to, the, um, to coming into contact with dead bodies um, we talked about um, the clothes. There's something about the sweat in particular. There's a couple possibilities. Why, what's the problem with, with sweat, right? Um, why might that defile a person? Um, some people, uh, some commentators connect this to Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14, which are about bodily emissions. Um, these bodily emissions are said, um, God says, defile a person and make them unclean and therefore unfit. And so perhaps sweat is connected with bodily uh, emissions. Um, I think it's, it's more likely something else, though, because the bodily emissions that are mentioned in Deuteronomy 23 have a lot to do with, um, the, um, with not being uh, productive or fruitful uh, in life. It's a sort of uh, a, 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 um, a way of, of coming at... Um, the promise of life and blessing and fulfillment and in seeing it not fulfilled in a way, um, seeing the blessings not fulfilled as this kind of an aspect of the curse, we might say, although, again, not immoral. But in the way that God is trying to teach these things about what holiness brings and blessings bring, um, this is likely the reason these bodily emissions defile the people. But if sweat's not connected to that, what is connected to it? Well, in a similar way, I think it's probably connected to the curse in Genesis chapter 3. It is in the curse um, that we read uh, to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It is, uh, as the priests go before the Lord, um, it, the, um, the sweat um, that is perhaps produced and that the Lord does not want produced is a, is a reminder of the curse, in other words. It's a reminder of death, a reminder of struggle, a reminder of toil. And that's not what we're supposed to be reminded of at the moment when we are uh, in this most holy place as the priests are, are, are um, ministering before the Lord. 
Death itself is, again, probably the reason for no wine um, when when ministering um, in the inner sanctuary. Um, Likely the uh, the danger is accidents, right? If you go to a construction site or uh, uh, an emergency room, there are just certain places that it's not a good idea to have had a little wine ahead of time, right? Um, it, it, probably a similar thing here. This is not a place where accidents uh, are allowable. It's not a place to let your guard down and just take it a little bit easy. Um, this is a place um, where only and always um, excellence and life and um, these kinds of things need to be uh, protected. The, uh, the final restriction I'll mention, or the, uh, the, the protection or rule for priests uh, regarding marriage, um, likely doesn't have to do um, with this death and life connection and defilement, but it has more with just keeping the bloodline pure. Notice that they are allowed to marry a widow of a priest, right? So the, the, the danger here is that the priests themselves, whom the Lord is, is keeping holy, not only through their particular actions, but also as he, um, uh, keeping holy not only in their particular actions, but also um, in their family and in that group of people, um, that is to be uh, protected as well. So it's intense, Right? It's pretty intense. The architecture is intense. The holiness of the Lord is intense. The restrictions on the people and who can and who can't and all the things that they must do uh, to meet that bar, to come into the presence of the Lord. Not anybody can be there, only those who meet these requirements. What does all this teach us? Well, this vision does not point us to an earthly temple, um, we know that in part because of language that is coming up and um, more as the vision is opened up, we see that uh, this is something that could never actually be built here on the earth. In addition, there are dimensions and things that, uh, there are parts of the temple that are not given that we just, we couldn't build it if we wanted to, in other words. So what is happening here? Why all the specifics? How are we to think about it? One way I find this helpful is to think about it in the same in the way that an, um, an author, maybe a science fiction author, uh, that's trying to make a particular point, creates a world, right? A world that is maybe very detailed with languages and people groups, various diplomatic acts and treaties and, and certain buildings and kinds of food, and this whole world is created. Why? Well, to communicate a story and tell things that are hopefully true about human life. This is, right, how science fiction and fantasy and these kind of genres work. This isn't science fiction. This isn't fantasy. This is a revelation of God, a vision of God, but it's meant to communicate in a sort of similar way, to describe a world, to describe a a place in particular, and all the things around it so that we would understand something about the author and so that we would understand something about the promises that he is making. This in the vision, in other words, points us not to an earthly temple that it is to be constructed, but it points us to a heavenly promise that's put in these Old Testament terms so that the people would understand the new beginning that God had promised them. Remember, he was promising them a new covenant. After all the devastation, after all the abominations, after everything that they had done, 
What next? What next? And in giving this vision to Ezekiel, he's showing them, he's showing him what's next, a new beginning, and a new beginning that's marked by God's presence with them instead of his absence with them. A new beginning that's marked by safety and hope and holiness. A holiness that will be maintained by God for his people. For us, that vision becomes a reality in the incarnation, life, and death of our Lord Jesus. Man is not destroyed when the Lord of heaven and earth comes into the world, but forgiven. God and all of his holiness, Jesus is the, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory, the New Testament says. And yet when he comes into this world, it's not like a bomb goes off and everything dies around him. The question is, why not? Why not? The angels were heralding, the big things were happening, and yet God saw fit to be born in the womb of a woman into a manger to live in this world and in all his holiness. Um, Jesus never uh, leaves, uh, never stops being divine, but he veils it. He covers it. He protects us from it by coming in the form of a servant, by being born in human flesh, and by fulfilling our part of the covenant. Man, God comes close to man ultimately, through the cross. And through that cross and through his coming in that way, he never loses his holiness, he maintains it. And then he does more. By protecting us from his, he protects us from his holiness by making us holy. And he does that by washing away our sins by marking us no longer as just people made in the image of God, but his special people, his chosen heritage, the children of Abraham. The New Testament tells us that we are a kingdom of priests, First Peter. We are made to come into the heavenly places where Christ is. We are seated there, Colossians says. And so as we look at this picture in Ezekiel 44, and we will continue to think about these things, whatever holiness we see there, whatever transcendence we see there, whatever eminence we see there, as God comes close to man, let it all teach you about your Savior. Let all of those things help you to understand more and better who he is, what it means that he comes and tabernacles or temples among us as John puts it in John 1. It's an amazing thing. It's a marvelous thing. And it's a saving thing too. Because if God had come in all of his glory and power to vanquish all his foes, we would all be dead and in hell. But God came, leaving aside his glory, but never his divinity, veiling it so that he might save us. He came in the form of a servant. He died on a cross 
so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins and so that we could come into the most holy places and dwell with him forever. And so when you read passages like we are going to sing in a moment, Psalm 24a, where it asks a question, who can be along, who can dwell on the hill of the Lord, who can ascend into the holy places? And it lists and it says, well, the person who does this and the person who does this and the person who does this, you can say, that's me in Christ. I am made holy because he has made me holy. I have been made clean because he has washed me clean. I am righteous because his righteousness has been imputed to me. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would bless us now as we come and pray to you, our Lord and our King, our Savior. We ask that you would help us to see and believe how great you are to feel the weight of your glory and be humbled by it and also receive the, the grace, the good news of your grace and embrace it so that we might have life itself. Lord, you have made us a holy people. You have called us saints. You have set us apart. You have sanctified us so that we might be near to you. Though our flesh and our heart may fail, you are our strength, you are our portion, you are our life forever. We ask, Lord, that as we cling to you, you would, you would never let us go. That you would empower us and strengthen us to know you more and more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.